The reading is Job 38, verses 1 to 18. Then the Lord answered Job, out of the storm, he said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself. Like a man, I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know who stretched a measuring line across it. On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked, wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expenses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today we're beginning a new sermon series that is either six weeks long or six months long, depending on how you look at it. Um, some weeks ago, the board and the deacons and ministry leaders were together doing some thinking about what we as a church could do to do some heart conditioning, to foster deeper and healthier Godward hearts in us. 
because we understood as leaders that everything starts in the heart. Faith, worship, mission, passion, unity, conduct, character, love for each other. It all flows from the heart. So what can we do to foster the kind of hearts out of which all of this stuff flows? And we decided then that our first and best step is to intentionally, consistently, explicitly raise the profile of Jesus in the church. And there's a number of ways in which we can do that, and one of those will be in our Sunday morning teaching time, which is natural, I think, because the role of the preacher is to teach the Word of God, and God's Word is about Jesus. So today we are launching a six-part sermon series that I'm calling C-H-R-I-S-T, where each letter will point us to a facet of the person and the work of Jesus. But really, our focus on Jesus will be at least the next six months, because when this six-week series is done, we launch it to the Christmas season. We're going to look at the life of Christ, beginning with his birth narratives, through his life, and going right through the Passion Week and Easter, and probably a couple weeks beyond that, with his death and resurrection and ascension. So all of this time, we're going to be fixing our thoughts on the Word of God around Jesus Christ. And it's not just that the theme of preaching for the next while will be Jesus, and after that, the theme will be something else. But we're just recognizing that Christian preaching is always about Jesus, and so is your life, and so is the church, and so is history, and so is eternity. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Right? There is nothing that doesn't rightly owe its allegiance to him. He is the eternal one. He is the savior of the world, the lover of your soul. He is your God, your best friend, your teacher, your owner, your brother, your advocate. He is the one, he's the only one in which you can know God and find contentment and joy. And he is, as has often been put, your everything. He's the source, the meaning, the foundation, the goal of your life. He's the life of the church. And so to fix our attention on Jesus is not a new thing. It is just right and natural for us as the people of God. And we just want to recapture that reality again. And, and as we fix our attention on Jesus, we believe that other things will find their clarity also. We also trust that as we do this, our fires will be lit and our joy renewed. But we should be cautioned that a focus on Jesus does not promise a happy experience all the time. We get confronted with some things along the way when we fix our attention on Jesus. For example, the people who struggle with the judgment of the Old Testament God, while we discover that Jesus, if anything, raised the stakes. He spoke more severely. No one in the New Testament spoke more severely than Jesus did on the realities of sin and judgment. He talked more about hell than heaven. He talked more about the dangers of money and materialism than he did any other one thing. So there are some things along the way that we'll be confronted with. But he also dripped with grace and with compassion. And he revealed God truly and perfectly. And he promised rest and refreshment and fullness to those who came to him. So all of these things, and this will be a good six months for us, and it begins today. A couple of things before we launch. Um, one is, please do not rely on preaching to be the only vehicle by which we fix our attention on Jesus. Okay, 25 or 35 minutes once a week is not going to do it for us. 
Uh, one of our life groups is on a 40-day journey, a devotional journey with Jesus. Another group has been studying Luke's gospel and will continue to do that. You might want to consider a daily Bible reading of your own around the life of Christ. Uh, here's an idea. This first six-week sermon series ends in 36 days, which is six more Sundays from now. Why not read a chapter a day? Uh, Mark and Luke together have 37 chapters, so that would be pretty close. And secondly, pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for the church. Ask that Jesus will be revealed and experienced in a new way in our church and in our hearts. So, here we go. Uh, I want to start this message this morning by setting it in the context of Thanksgiving, which is what our morning is all about today. This is Thanksgiving week here in Canada, sort of day seven. And we've celebrated God's goodness already in our service and our song today. And we did last week's Sunday as well. Now it's traditional on Thanksgiving, in our culture at least, and in our churches, to give particular thanks for the material blessings that, that we enjoy. We live in a very prosperous country and enjoy the provision of food and family and homes and clothing and security and all the material comforts. And as I said last week, we are not merely glad, we are thankful. And God is the object of our thanksgiving. Every good and perfect gift that we have is just that, a gift that comes to us from the Father, according to the book of James. And God is a giver because he's a giver by nature. He's generous. And the reason that he's able to give is because these gifts are his to give. You can't give anything away that's not yours to give. We had a friend in our house last weekend who brought a bag of chips for her to enjoy. And at one point, the bag was just out on the table. And my daughter, Renee, said, Dad, can I have some chips? And I said that they weren't mine to give away. You know, I've got no problem if Renee wants to have a few chips, and, but my being the most generous guy in the world isn't helpful at all in that moment. I couldn't give her what was not mine to give. And if we acknowledge that God is the giver of the good gifts that we have received, we are also at the same time acknowledging that he has the right to give those things because they're his to give. Everything belongs to God. And why is that? Because he is the creator. And inherent in the reality of thanksgiving is the reality that God is the creator. Because he is the creator of everything, he has the right of ownership of everything. And so every good and perfect gift that we received is rightly understood as coming to us ultimately from God, our Father, the creator. That God is the creator of all things is one of the central proclamations of his word. The Bible begins with these awe-inspiring, I think, words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the creation account goes on to describe how God, by the word of his power, spoke into existence. The sun, the moon, the stars, the land, the seas, and all their fullness of grasses and plants and trees and fish and creatures and mankind, and everything that has been made. All that exists, everything that we see, that we don't see, all that exists, exists because God has created. 
And lots of our other affirmations about God are founded in the reality of his being the creator. For example, the lordship of God is rooted in God as creator. God is the supreme master. He's the owner. He's the sovereign Lord over all things because he is the creator of all things. And included in that affirmation is not just that God is the Lord, but that God is our Lord. He's not just generically God, but he is the right of lordship over the nations of the earth and over each one of us in our own lives. Psalm 24 begins, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. See, the world and we belong to God because he has made it. That's what Psalm 24 says. So we affirm the lordship of God because he is creator. We affirm the power of God because he is the creator. When we consider the mysteries of the subatomic and marvel at the immensity of the universe, here's some fun stuff. If you traveled 12,000 kilometers per second, you would circle the earth in that one second. Traveling at that speed, you would reach Pluto in 11 days and leave our solar system in just over two months. It would take 100 years to get to the next nearest star, of which there are billions in our own galaxy, and billions of galaxies in turn. That's just a snapshot. But all of this, God has made by his power, and he sustains it by his power. And the power of the God who made all of this is just beyond our comprehension. So God is the creator and therefore we affirm his power. We also affirm the trustworthiness of God. And here's why the text this morning was from the book of Job. You remember the story of Job. How he underwent a series of devastations including the loss of his wealth, health, the loss of his family. And when he complained to God and demanded answers as to why this was happening to him, God showed up and spoke to Job. Do you remember? What did God say? God grilled Job with a series of questions, the first part of which is what Crystal read for us today. He said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who shut in the sea and set limits for it? Hey, do you see what goes on in the depths of the sea? Do you create the dawn? Did you invent the rain? Do you set the stars in their patterns? Okay, let's scale it down to some simpler things. Do you make the lions to hunt? Did you invent the donkey or the ox or the ostrich? And so on. And you notice in that whole litany of God's grilling Job with questions that God never answers Job's questions. God simply points to himself as the creator and implies to Job, look Job, I did all of this. Don't you think that I have your situation in hand as well? I'm the creator. You can trust me in your situation. And people of Thornhill, in whatever situation you find yourself in and we find ourselves in, the God who keeps the galaxies spinning in perfect choreography and who each spring fashions each petal of each daisy do you not think that he has your situation in hand? He is the creator, and you can trust him. And you may not see it all clearly, but God sees it clearly, and he sees you clearly. 
and he's got you covered. He is a creator, and therefore he is trustworthy. God often appealed to his ownership of all things as creator in helping his people to understand certain realities. When God brought Israel into the promised land, he made certain provisions for the care of the poor by periodically having everyone have their land restored to them if they had to give it up because of financial difficulties. But God set that law in the context of his ownership. He said, the land must not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners. In other words, don't think you can do whatever you want with the land. It's not your land. It's God's land. The earth is the Lord's because he made it. And they were to relate to the land and use the land accordingly. And then in Psalm 50, regarding worship, God is rebuking his people for thinking that they were somehow supplying a need of God by their sacrifices and their religious observances, as if they're doing God a favor by engaging in worship. And God said to them, do you think I need these sacrifices? Do you think I'm like the gods of the nations around you and that you're feeding me with these animals? God put it this way, I will not accept a bull from your house, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. So all of this, God's lordship, God's power, God's trustworthiness and care, and the context for our care of the poor, our use of the land, the context for our philosophy of worship, all of this is rooted in the simple reality that God is the creator of all things. And God, has, God as creator has implications for all other things. And this truth permeates the Old Testament. Israel worshipped the God whom they knew was Lord of heaven and earth. The one and only God, supreme, powerful, who loved them. The Lord, who as creator had the greatness to be worthy of their worship. The authority to command their allegiance. And the loving care to lead and protect and to relate to them. It was God the creator on whom they fixed their eyes. And it's this creator on whom we fix our eyes. Psalm 121, we sometimes sing these words. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And then a child was born to a teenaged girl and her husband in a stable in Little Bethlehem in the days of the Roman Empire. And his birth in poverty was reflective of his whole life. Growing up in Nazareth, which was considered a backwater town, even by the rest of the people in backwater Israel. As an adult, he had no home of his own. And people gradually began to understand that there was something unique and different about this man. As a rabbi, a teacher... Then it grew and they understood that he was a prophet, that God was uniquely at work in him in some way. He was a miracle worker. But his followers understood him yet differently than that, more than just as a great man of God. And when they interpreted his life and his activity, 
they began to make some pretty stunning assertions about this Jesus of Nazareth. And I want to draw three of them out for you this morning. The Gospel of John, for example, begins with the language of Genesis 1 in the creation account. It says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then these words, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And we go on to read that this word, who was with God and was God, is the word made flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, whom John himself got to spend time with. Now, what John is saying here is pretty earth-shattering. Even though we as Christians have become so familiar with it, it doesn't strike us anymore. But a first-century Jew saying that his rabbi was in some way both with God and was God and pre-existed all things and was the means by which all things were created and was himself the source of all life, I mean, this is a quantum leap from Jesus as prophet and man of God. And nor was John the only one who said things like this. Colossians chapter 1 says this of Jesus. This is the Apostle Paul now writing. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, which is a statement, by the way, of Jesus' rank. Not that he was created first, but elevated to the rank of firstborn. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And get this, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, this is stunning. The first century world had no grid to interpret this. This is new information. Jesus is the creator. Everything belongs to him. Everything exists for him. And not only that, but everything continues to exist because Jesus continues to hold it together. And this is a statement not just of the providence of God generically, but of the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived 2,000 years ago. I mean, these are incredible statements that are being made. In Hebrews chapter 1, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. It's the idea of firstborn again, that it will all belong to him. His Son, through whom he also created the world, and he, that is Jesus, upholds the universe, by the word of his power. Again, those ideas of Jesus in creation, the heir of all things, the one toward whom all things are moving and the one to whom all things belong. The one to whom all things owe not only their original existence, but their continued existence. And that the universe exists today and you exist today Because a living and present Jesus of Nazareth is actively sustaining it, sustaining you. And if he stopped for a moment, all would cease. 
Well, those are quite the things to say about a man. But that's what the community of Jesus affirmed about him. And it's no wonder that the, that the early Christians made such a stir. But what made them say such things? This isn't just random theology, nor is it the, the overzeal of star-struck religious devotees. This was to them the inspired and revealed truth of Jesus made known to them by the Holy Spirit of God. This was God's declaration concerning the man, Christ Jesus. And that revelation to them lined up with their experience of Jesus as well. Not just as a teacher, though you remember in the gospel accounts, even when he spoke, people said that something different about that. There's, there's a divine authority in his words that we're not hearing anywhere else. But more than Jesus as a teacher, they had witnessed things in his life. They had witnessed his authority and his power over creation. You remember a couple of occasions where the disciples were fishing all night, fishermen by trade, and caught nothing. And not once, but twice, Jesus says to them, why don't you go over to this spot, and drop your net right here. And the disciples are like, we're fishermen. Hello, you're a carpenter. But Jesus, if you said it, we'll do it. And you remember that both times they had such a catch of fish that their nets were threatening to break. And something twigged in the disciples' mind. And the first time that that happened, Peter immediately recognized, oh my goodness. I don't understand fully, but I know that somehow you're a holy man and I am not. And you had better keep your distance from me. Jesus' authority over creation, in that case over the catch of fish, struck the disciples. Something different. Another occasion, Jesus was again teaching to a crowd of at least 5,000 people who hadn't had lunch all day. And he took the simple five loaves and two fish, blessed them, had them distributed, and everyone had enough. I mean, that's more than just... A miracle. This is Jesus' sovereign lordship over the elements, able to just take a little something and feed a massive crowd. It's like the creation story. He spoke and it was. And the disciples, again, recognized something different. And not only the disciples, but the crowd said, this must be the Christ. We want to make him king. The disciples are in a boat with Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee and a storm came up. Now what do you do in a storm? You bolt for the beach. What does Jesus do in a storm? He takes command of it and tells it to stop and it does. I mean, the disciples we read were terrified after that. Well of course they were. They'd never seen anything like this before. Never seen a man do something like this before. But they had the creator in the boat. The Lord of the storm in the boat, and they witnessed it. They got to the other side of the lake in this particular account and met a man who was demon-possessed. And lo and behold, guess who has authority even over the demons? Jesus says, come out of that man, go. And they respond. Another occasion, many occasions, blindness, leprosy, paralysis, and Jesus speaks, and there's healing. 
I mean, the disciples, the community of Christ saw all these things, and they knew this isn't just a prophet. This is not just a teacher with divine wisdom. When the Holy Spirit revealed to them that this was the Son of God, the creator of all things, the eternal preexistent one, they said, you know what? Now everything that we saw makes sense. Authority over disease and demons and weather and the elements. Yes, Jesus Christ, this carpenter, this rabbi, we have witnessed firsthand his creative authority and his power. We're fixing our eyes on Jesus these days. But we're not just fixing our eyes on Jesus who died for our sins and will make everything all right. We're fixing our eyes on Jesus who always has been, is now, and always will be. The one who formed you and formed all things. That Jesus of Nazareth, whom we read about and sometimes seem so distant, is the creator of all things. Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord of power and authority and trustworthiness. And so we, as his people in these days, what do we do? Well, we worship, obviously. That Jesus is the creator means that he is the center and that we have our purpose in him, all things created by him and for him. We fix our lives and our eyes upon him. And that is the natural and the right and the appropriate response from us. Recognizing Jesus as Lord of all, as creator, who created us, we offer our allegiance and devotion to him. And that's an obvious thing, and that's what we do. When we, when we sing and when we come to church together, it's what we try to remind ourselves of all the time. And we do it poorly, I think. I do it poorly. But our response is worship to the creator. Secondly, our response also is we recognize that we, in fact, belong to him. And that's different than just worshiping him. We can worship, we can declare the greatness of Christ and mean it with all our hearts until we're blue in the face. But it's another thing to say, it's a step beyond that to say, not only will I follow you every day, but I actually belong to you. It's not my choice to follow you and I'm doing you a favor. It's you own me. How can I not follow you? You have created me for yourself, Jesus, and therefore I belong. And so we don't have Jesus in our life. We have our life in Jesus. So we recognize that we belong to him. And third, trust. Like Job. No matter your circumstances, no matter what you're walking through today, will you consciously say today, Jesus, I don't see everything clearly, but I trust in you. I will not be anxious. I won't enjoy my hardship, but I will know that you are good in the midst of it, and I will honor you, and I will wait upon you. Because in our hardship, whatever its flavor, whatever it looks like, whatever it feels like, if it's your hardship or our hardship or even the crises in the world, Jesus says, like he said to Job, look, 
Where were you when I put each star in its spot? Where were you when I set the boundaries for the ocean, when I raised the mountains up? Where were you when I decided how rabbits should give birth and how the flowers should multiply and how the sunrise should look every day? I've got all of that in hand, and I've got you in hand, Jesus says to you and to us. Jesus, the creator, we trust him. Had a conversation this week with a pastor, a friend of mine, who says, he says, I'm just increasingly learning to trust Jesus in people. I don't understand everything that happens in church and in the world or even in my own life, but I'm learning to trust Jesus at work in what's going on around me. We trust Jesus because he is the creator of all things. And then fourth, just to come full circle today, our response to Jesus as creator is thanksgiving. All of the blessings that we have, everything that comes to us from the good hand of God, comes to us through Jesus, who in oneness with his Father is the source of all good things. And why don't you think right now, even in this moment, for three things for which you are thankful. Thank you, Jesus, for these things. Jesus, the Christ, the creator. How does that reality give shape, not just to our Sunday worship, but to your life tomorrow? And the rest of the week and in the days to come. The lordship and power and trustworthiness and care of Jesus Christ, our Lord. All things each day, your work and home, the church, the world in which we live, we ourselves, you yourself, all things were created by him and created for him. He made you, he knows you, he loves you, and you find your life only in him. All things were created through him. Not anything that was made was made without him. In him was life, and in him is life. Jesus Christ, the Lord, our creator and master and friend. Let's pray.